Well, for those of you that I haven't met, um, my name is Drusha Emerson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Community, and it is my um, privilege to share with you this morning out of this series that we've been doing on the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is uh, fun and exciting, and I will be entirely honest with you. Um, will put the fear of God into you if you have to share it with other people. Um, because there's so much to Revelation. Um, and I think there have been, uh, over the centuries, uh, plenty of misreadings of Revelation. Uh, and yet there is this stirring in us in this mystical, wild book um, that closes out uh, what is our canon of scripture um, that draws us into that mystical, wild God that we serve, um, that reached towards us and that alters our reality uh, in this wild kind of a way. Um, and so this morning, as we get into um, the church in Sardis, the letter to the church in Sardis in the third chapter of Revelation, I'm going to invite us to just um, sort of um, pause in our, uh, in our daily. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, as we roll back into school, uh, I also teach at Whitworth, and as we prepare for the semester and um, and as COVID continues to rise here in our community, um, there's a lot going on. And in any given week, uh, we have a lot that happens. And so this morning, I just want to invite us into this space um, to allow the wildness of God, um, the holiness of God, the otherness of God, to just kind of permeate the space and open our hearts, open our minds to what the Holy Spirit would say this morning to us. So um, I'm going to invite us into that, and I'm just going to pray briefly for us. Holy Spirit, as we have just prayed corporately, um, acknowledging uh, this Jesus that came and walked among us, that you now, Holy Spirit, have been sent and are among us. We recognize that this morning. In this holy place of gathering where your people are gathered in your name, we invite you, Spirit, to speak through us, through your word, to make it alive to our hearts, to sharpen our minds, that we would encounter the wildness of God and the holiness of God. And in that, that our hearts would be adjusted once again to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Chapter 3, the church in Sardis, uh, follows on from uh, what Kevin shared in many ways uh, about the church in Ephesus. Um, Sardis is in Asia Minor. It's not on the ocean. It's inland Turkey, what is modern-day Turkey. And uh, the church in Sardis was a prominent church because Sardis was prominent. Um, this 
chapter opens up similar to the other chapters. Uh, the Holy Spirit is addressing the church. Uh, what's hard about this chapter is there's no commendation to Sardis. Uh, it is not a case of, I have seen your good works, and now you need to strengthen this thing. Uh, Sardis is in trouble, and we're going to take a look at that this morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles um, or open your app uh, to the third chapter of Revelation, we're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. And I'm actually going to read this a couple times because I think there's a lot in here, and it's brief. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white as they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I will confess that the first time I read that, having volunteered uh, to read this to cover this chapter in Sardis, I thought, "Wow, okay, yeah, um, this is this is a lot." Um, okay, um, because I will be honest, the very first thing I read is condemnation. I hear a God who's going to come against you because you're getting it wrong, because you're dead. <laughs> and so I thought, well, we know that that is not exactly how God operates. So what else is going on here? So we're going to unpack this a little bit uh, this morning. <clears throat> One of the things that I'm going to encourage us to do uh, to begin with is to consider correction. Uh, now, I don't know about you, um, but I'm one of uh, five siblings, and whether you have siblings or your partner has siblings or your children have siblings, uh, one of the things that we all learn pretty quickly in the context of siblings is that when a sibling is getting in trouble, it's one, really smart to steer clear, and two, a really good idea to listen in so you do not make the same mistake that they are making. Right? So I don't know how many times I spared myself a grounding, a consequence, some kind of trouble because so-and-so had done whatever. And I listened in and was like, okay, so note to self, do not. Right? And so I think one of the things that we can see here is this is a church. These are fellow believers. These are our siblings. So the correction here it to us is one of yeah, like what can we learn here? What can we, what can we read from their mistake? Um, and so that's the approach that I'm taking this morning is 
Uh, correction, when it's happening by a loving God, is never a bad thing to tune into, to be corrected. We have nothing to lose. We are loved completely, fully accepted, but it doesn't mean we don't carry baggage from those who have corrected us badly in the past, from those who didn't ever bother to correct us and just left us to our own endeavors and we got ourselves thick into the weeds before we figured out that nobody had bothered to tell us that this was not a good idea. So the notion of correction can be a bit loaded, but I think what's beautiful here is the reminder that we are deeply, deeply loved and correction comes out of that place. So I want to encourage us this morning, let's listen in to what's happened with our siblings and to receive the correction that might be for us out of this knowing that the Holy Spirit works gently in our hearts and that we serve a gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger. So Sardis, what about Sardis? This is where it got a little bit fun for me. I did a little bit of my geeking out, my homework, and I went and I, I looked Sardis up. Um, Sardis had a really fascinating history. It's a much smaller town now than it was um, back in the first century. But in Asia Minor, Sardis had actually uh, was a very prominent town and had been for a very, very long time. Uh, prior to the Roman Empire, it was part of the Lydian Empire. And it was prominent because it was a fortress town built in the crags at the base of this huge mountain in Turkey, and it overlooked this beautiful plain. And the plain was a major thoroughfare to the Aegean Sea. So all the trade that went through the area was overseen, literally, by the city of Sardis, and was a stopping off point, was a place of protection. And so Sardis was also a highly contended place. Um, a lot of people tried to conquer it. It was really hard to conquer. Uh, we often hear the stories of Troy, right? Massive walls, and chariot races around the top. But Sardis was a place that had high walls, and they were built into the steep cliffs, so it was almost impregnable. Classically, and quite famously, prior to the first century and the writing of Revelation, Sardis had actually been captured twice. Um, and unfortunately, uh, had been captured quite easily. Uh, myths hold that uh, the Persian Empire, uh, coming after the city, uh, were laying siege to the city, and some soldiers who were sort of at the base trying to figure out how they were going to breach these walls saw a soldier that was up on the wall drop his helmet accidentally over the edge of the wall. And then they watched him scramble down and pick it up. And they figured out that if they scrambled up the way he'd scrambled down, they could get into the city. So the Persians took Sardis by scrambling up the wall and opening the front door. Persian army came in, that was it, the city fell. Unfortunately, that happened twice. So they didn't learn, a couple hundred years apart, but they didn't learn from their mistake. So Sardis is known as this place that is impregnable, and yet, because the watchman on the wall has not been vigilant, was taken twice. So the book of Revelation was actually written around 95 AD, we think. And in 17 AD, Sardis had actually experienced a massive earthquake. And the Roman emperor, Tiberius, had sent 
10, I had to write this down because I was like, that's a lot of money. Um, he had sent 10 million sisteries, sisterces, Brooke, I got it wrong, sisterces, um, to rebuild the city. And they did. They rebuilt it. Marble highways running into the city um, and a beautiful temple to Artemis. Even the synagogue was rebuilt and to this day is this beautiful, outstanding ruin that people go to see. So everyone benefited from the rebuilding of Sardis. It was rebuilt for the glory of Rome. So with that context, I want us to wade into what is being addressed here to the church in Sardis. Very often in Revelation, we ask the question, what is for us and what is not? If there's correction here for, from our sibling church in Sardis, then what is for us? Without context, we can often step into pride. Oh, we would never do that. We can dismiss. No, I, this, is, this, this doesn't have anything to do with us anymore. Or we can misapply. We can make it too much about us. And I think that there's a balance to strike. So what are the parts that we can recognize? <clears throat> As applying to us. In his book, Resisting Empire, which I highly encourage as a read. It's not long, um, but I've gotten a lot of, out of it. And C. West Daniels writes about the nature of Revelation and some of the things that apply so clearly to us in our moments. One of the things that he says right here at the beginning The Roman Empire represented all that stood opposed to the kingdom of God. Whenever the Roman Empire is addressed in the early church, whenever empire is addressed in the early church, it is in opposition to the kingdom of God, to the people of God and the ways of the people of God. Here's the deal. Revelation speaks to the reality that we are caught in the fray of cosmic conflict. We are guilty. We've already been contaminated. But it's not too late for us to exit empire and enter the kingdom. We are yet both victim and victimizer. We have healing work to do, and we must take the responsibility for the ways in which we have benefited from and been complicit with the religion of the empire. That's one of the things that really struck me about what is addressed to Sardis. The Spirit says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive. So what does that imply? That implies that there was intention. It wasn't accidental. What they were getting into trouble over was something they were doing intentionally. Last week, Kevin brought up this idea that there's a difference between losing and leaving. To lose your first love through distraction, he gave the example of Grace losing her ring. Uh, it turned out that the boys had been playing uh, pirate treasure 
right? And it had ended up in some kind of random little pirate treasure case. But to lose something is, is often, there's, you may not be as culpable in the losing, right? You may have been distracted, but to leave shows intention. And one of the things that we see with the church in Sardis is there is intention because they are keeping up appearances. They're just not commended for the appearances that they're keeping up. The Spirit always knows. I know, the Spirit says, what your reputation is, and it's for being alive, but you are dead. Then there's a contradiction here in the immediately following line. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So hold on just a second. Dead, right? And the images you appear to be alive, this is not a flattering image. This is a zombie image, right? You appear to be alive, but you're dead. The only parallel that I can think of is the walking dead, right? Like, not a good, not a good parallel to draw. But then, then the Spirit says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So this is the kind of wake up that Jesus called to the little girl, to Jairus' daughter, to wake up. This is not a, hey, hey, it's time to get up. School's starting. It's morning, right? This is like warming up the paddles and getting everybody to stand back and go, right? This is a coming alive again. This is a waking up that is tantamount to resurrection. It's resurrection, right? It's a waking up from the dead. That can only occur through the power of the Holy Spirit. So right away, we start to get away from that notion of like, hey, you're getting this wrong and you need to get it right. Nope, you're dead. There's not much you can do about that. So I'm addressing it to you so you quit walking around like a zombie pretending you're not. Let's deal with your actual situation. Let's deal with what's really going on. Let's exchange in truth what's actually happening. And when you're ready to acknowledge that you're walking around dead, uh, I can go ahead and warm up the paddles. We can do that, right? There's room for that. But you have to acknowledge it. You've got to be willing to actually live in the truth of your situation and stop keeping up appearances. He says, for I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. So what remains is about to die. So there is a remnant, and there's, this is a salvage work. Your work is incomplete. That notion that the work is incomplete means that something started out right. Something started out in a way that it was supposed to. In 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, Paul writes, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is that? It's the word. It's the life that is in Jesus Christ. It's the call to the kingdom. Right? That deposit is placed in every believer when they surrender their life to Jesus, when they acknowledge Jesus as Lord. That deposit is made by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that deposit's there. It's there, and there's a remnant of it. 
And yet, something has gone wrong. So knowing what Sardis is in the context of the empire, what we start to identify is the wooing that's happened away from the way that they were called to live and the life that is in the kingdom and the way that they are now living. So we pick up here with West Daniel, and he talks about two liturgies. And I thought this was really a beautiful way to break this down. A theme that arises throughout Revelation is that there are competing liturgies. Here we should think of liturgies as those practices, rituals, language, and symbols that shape us in particular ways and for particular ends. Revelation warns us that empire has its own liturgy. Empire's ceremonies create an atmosphere of worship that draws people into a particular narrative. It dulls the senses and forms a kind of alienation over time and keeps people from challenging its ideology. I'm going to give us just a second to think about what that looks like in our moment. Empire can be a number of different things. Empire is a place where power has been concentrated, where there has been enough time to develop the liturgy that reinforces that power. And then we get wooed into it. Our senses are dulled, and we begin to worship. It's idolatry, and yet we slip into it so easily. On the one hand, the empire's religion of temples, statues, decrees, ordinances, and and symbols are for John a kind of liturgy that dulls the hearts and minds of its subjects. In so many ways, nothing has changed. We have our own temples now our own statutes, decrees, and ordinances. We have our own symbols, things that concentrate power, often at the expense of the most vulnerable. This liturgy, this liturgy of empire, is meant to abstract you from the present moment, lull you to sleep so that you're not awake to your own suffering, let alone the suffering of your neighbor. To participate in the liturgy of empire is to be unable to see the ways in which we are both agents and targets of oppression. This, I think, is what the church in Sardis is dealing with. They are a concentrated fortress. They don't have to pay taxes for five years after they've been given this loan by the empire to rebuild. And they're sitting kind of pretty. And the church in Sardis has learned how to keep up appearances, and they are not pursuing the life that was entrusted to them in Jesus. They are not pursuing the kingdom any longer because they've been lulled into the liturgy of empire. And I think we can take a moment, just examine our own hearts, and acknowledge that both communally and individually, we're not that far off. We're good at keeping up appearances. We have our own liturgies that we have been lulled into. We participate in empire 
in focused places of power at the expense of other people. On the other hand, however, there is a second competing liturgy in Revelation. It is the liturgy of the Lamb that was slain. One that is rooted in nonviolence, in love of neighbor and enemy, and understands God to be for all of creation. This liturgy builds resilience, shapes theological imaginations in ways that people can have the antibodies necessary to resist empire. And it is truthful. It helps us to see where we are complicit. Helps us to wake up, to deal in the truth. Where we are complicit with empire and how we might begin to subvert it. Each liturgy reveals the image of God behind it. One, a God of violence. The other, a God of love. As the Spirit continues writing to the church, we hear a threat. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I'll be honest, I read this as a kid. I have read it multiple times and then I read it again as I was preparing and I thought, that is terrifying, right? Here we are trying to do our best and God's going to come get us if we get it wrong. And I would like to encourage us and please hear me. I do not think that's what is being written here. I think what's being identified is that God is saying quite clearly, I will come after the empire and I will tear it down. It is in opposition to the kingdom and the kingdom will stand and the empire will fall. And if you have found yourself on the side of the empire, you are going to wake up and you're going to find somebody snuck in, open the front door, and the story's over. You cannot think that you can play it nice, keep up appearances, side with the empire, and not find yourself present in the moment of destruction. Now, I'm not going to comment here about eternal destruction, because we're not going to get into that kind of heavy theology this morning. What I am thinking, though, is that what's quite clear is Jesus came preaching a kingdom that is now. And we cannot participate in that kingdom if we're trying to keep up appearances for the empire. That kingdom is where the Spirit's fruit is made manifest, where we live in rest and peace, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how hectic things have gotten, no matter how out of control we are, we know that we are dearly loved and cared for by a God of peace and rest. That what is made manifest through us is now in this community and individually we experience the kingdom of God, the power of God. And the richness of that comes through when we find ourselves engaged in the kingdom of God 
and allow the Holy Spirit to move through us and the power of God is made manifest. When and where empire is taken down by the kingdom of God and we find ourselves in a place where we once again need to repent, I've been in that situation. It looks like being with a friend and coming up with all the right answers because their heart is really broken and I'm coming up with all the head knowledge and I'm like, yeah, and this. And my other friend says, hey, you know what? Can we pray for you right now? And everything that I was saying to try to like look good, I was trying to look good, suddenly that crumbles and I find myself humbled in the presence of a God who just wanted to step in and minister to that friend through prayer. Not that those words weren't necessarily appropriate, but when they come out of pride, I'm bought into another kingdom. Right? That's a very personal example, but I think we also know what it looks like when on a grand scale, we buy into a notion that the kingdom, the empire, is something that we can control, that we get to have our say, that it's about my rights, and that if there's somebody that my rights cost, like if my rights cost somebody else something, they need to figure out their stuff and they need to go ahead and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get on board because it's really about all of us just doing our thing because we are an independent, autonomous people. And then we know how destructive and how ugly and how angry that mentality gets, that over-individualized mentality that says, yeah, you know what? I just put me first. You put you first. You do you, I'll do me. We're all good. We all make room for everybody to just do their thing. You know, and if you need a little help, yeah, I got your back. And then you've got mine, right? And we don't owe each other anything. That mentality runs counter to the kingdom, right? Not that we don't participate in it easily, get lulled into it easily. It's a mentality, it's a mindset that will be taken down by the kingdom of God. And when it is, and when we have sided with it, we will find ourselves in a place of being humbled, of having to step away, or sometimes actually finding that we have to rebuild because we have not built from a kingdom perspective. I want to close with this. Yet. Yet. It's a little word. Yet. You have still a few names in Sardis, people who've not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed dust in white garments and will never blot, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We do not make our clothes clean. We are not capable of making ourselves worthy. There is only one who is worthy. 
and our clothes are made dirty by virtue of the fact that we just wear them and we're human. And so what do we do? We come back to that place of repentance. Recognizing that we are not worthy. We were never worthy. There is only one who is worthy. And we stand clothed in Christ Jesus. We stand clothed in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, my encouragement to us, as we step into worship and as we come to the table of communion, is take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to speak conviction to your heart. Where have you participated in the liturgy of empire? Here we are participating together in the liturgy of the kingdom. You're already here. You're already doing it. Allow the Spirit to speak rest and life and wholeness to woo you back to this place where the Spirit may then manifest the fruit of the kingdom, where you may participate in the liturgy of the kingdom once again. And as you allow the Spirit to speak to your heart this morning, would you hear again that you are deeply loved, that you have taken on Christ and are wholly worthy because you are in Christ Jesus And he is the only one who was ever worthy of all glory and honor and praise.